Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're in this great chapter that talks about the resurrection of the dead, and like I've mentioned to you a couple times before, the theme of the chapter isn't Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's actually our resurrection from the dead because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So Paul's writing to the Corinthian church to remind them of these things because not all were holding on to that truth. They were questioning that truth, some of them. And so he reminds us that there is our coming resurrection of the dead because of Jesus' resurrection of the dead. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 57. And you might be thinking there's one more verse in the paragraph, 58. And you're right, 58 is the application to chapter 15. In some ways, it's the application for the entire book. And so my plan is for next Sunday to just tackle 1 Corinthians 15, 58 and to make some sense out of that for us so that we fully embrace what the Apostle Paul and maybe better yet, the Holy Spirit intends for us as we've heard 1 Corinthians over the past months. So this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 57, please follow along as I read. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've entitled this message, A Whole New You. And this isn't an infomercial for some vitamin or exercise equipment. It is the teaching of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15 that promises believers an eternal, immortal body that cannot be harmed or compromised, that cannot weaken, that cannot grow old and weary, that cannot succumb to temptation. The New Testament, the Holy Spirit promises in this chapter a perfect whole new you that's coming. We don't have to speculate about these things. We can know that it's true. Now, there are some things associated with this that we don't know. This is, these are the questions we get often from our children and grandchildren, right? Will we be able to fly with our new bodies? I don't know. <laughs> will, will we sleep? Will, will we eat? And we have some maybe sanctified speculations as to these things. But this passage is crystal clear. We will have new bodies. So there are a lot of things we might not understand about the new heavens and new earth, but there are some things that we can totally bank on. And one is that we will have new bodies. Why in the world is this reality in this book? Why did the Holy Spirit put this in 1 Corinthians? Why isn't this addressed to the Thessalonians? Well, it's addressed to the Corinthians because, remember, the theme of this book is Christian, don't be like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't operate like the world. And in Corinth at that time, there was the idea, and also other areas of of the known world at the time, the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman Empire, but especially in Corinth, there was this idea that the physical is bad, the spiritual is good. And so Christians were tempted to believe, I get it, I'm going to die one day in this physical body and my spirit will be released to be with God and that'll be it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 Jesus Christ rose from the dead and received a new body for a new place, not this earth, not this cursed earth. So we will receive a new body fit for another place, not this place. Paul's been showing us all throughout 1 Corinthians 15 that what happened to Christ will happen to us. He came out of the grave, so will we come out of the grave. He, in this passage, has a new body, so will we have a new body. And so they were questioning that because, again, the physical was a bad thing. Paul's writing to show them it's not the physical that's a bad thing, it's sin that's bad. But God will bring us, again, physically to a new place without the threat of sin, temptation, and we will enjoy life with Christ spiritually, physically. You could see that there was some questioning this. Verse 35 starts off with, someone will ask. And this isn't a friendly theological question. There's a way to ask questions theologically. This isn't someone saying, well, how are the dead raised? That's not the spirit of this question. The spirit of this question is, well, how are the dead raised? 
It's not really a question, it's a statement. I don't believe that. And that's the type of question that this person is asking. And Paul anticipates that because that was going on with some in Corinth. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? That's why the answer is such a sharp answer. He doesn't say, hey, that's a good question, and I understand that you really are wondering about that, and you're very teachable and open to what the Bible says. No, 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 this is a challenging question. This is a question that doesn't believe in a future resurrection of the dead physically. That's why it's met with the words, you foolish person, you ignorant person. And that matches just the previous verse, doesn't it? The the last one we looked at last week, verse 34. Paul says this, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some people don't know that there's a resurrection of the dead because they have no knowledge of God, no knowledge of his plan, no knowledge of what he promises. And this could be the person he was referring to that's asking this question. How are the dead raised? Seriously? I mean, what kind of body do they come with? Really? A body? And so that's why it's met with such a harsh response from Paul. And so he writes in our passage before us today to prove to the Corinthian church and also to us that there will be a resurrection of the dead. You will receive new bodies and you can bank on that. And so he gives them three considerations for why they can be sure of having resurrection bodies. Three things to consider so that they can be sure they will have resurrected bodies. And I'll read them to you at the very beginning and then go through one at a time. Here's the first consideration. Consider that God already makes different kinds of bodies. He's already been making different kinds of bodies. So he can make a different body fit for heaven. That's the first consideration. The second one is consider that we will no longer be defined by Adam, but by Christ. Third, consider that God plans to change us into imperishable people. He looks at God's overall plan to do this. So let's take the first one. Consider that God already makes different kinds of bodies. Paul's going to use plant life, animal life. He's going to refer to fish and astronomy to show that God already makes different kinds of physical life. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that he would make a different kind of body for us so that we can live in the new heavens and the new earth. That's his argument in 35 to 41. Again, we, lo- we saw 35. Some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Continuing in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. When you plant a seed, you know that it's only going to come to life if you plant it, if you bury it, if you will. Verse 37, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. You throw a kernel in there, a seed, not much. There's not life, but you plant it and you wait for life. That's his argument. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So you see an acorn and then decades and decades and centuries and centuries later, there's a huge oak tree. And so he's saying there's something that looks like nothing, looks like death, looks like decay, but you bury it 
and you're hoping for something. You, you know how this happens in agriculture, Christian. Something is buried and planted, and then life comes. And he's connecting that to how our bodies will give way, will die, be buried, and then life will come one day. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So he's just, uh, he's just said that God chooses what kind of life he's going to give, right? And then he starts listing a bunch of different kinds of living beings. One kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. So they're all different, but God's given different types of physical bodies to different beings. Verse 40, then he goes to the stars and the sun and the moon. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So again, he's trying to show God's already in the business of creating aardvarks and zebras and javelina and this star and that sun and that moon and that fish. So why would you think that it's totally impossible that he wouldn't create a body fit for heaven, a different body for us fit for heaven? So he's simply looking at all the creation, all the kinds of bodies that God's been creating, and he says they're all different and they have all got their own glory, their own greatness. They all vary. So you can bank on the fact that there will be another one coming for us. That's what he's showing. So consider, God already makes different kinds of bodies. Many of you know of the ministry of uh, the Christian lady, Johnny Erickson Tata. Paralyzed, confined to a wheelchair, has been for decades. But the hope that she has and the way that she thinks about heaven as one day receiving a new body... She gets that from places like 1 Corinthians 15. And she's written to help us make sense of this and to kind of get us anticipating heaven. She says this, Trying to understand what our bodies will be like in heaven is much like expecting an acorn to understand the destiny of its roots, bark, branches, and leaves. Or asking a caterpillar to appreciate flying. Obviously, it make, wouldn't make sense to the caterpillar or the acorn, but there is something greater coming, right? And so she's trying to show us that. Or a peach pit to fathom being fragrant. Or a coconut to grasp what it means to sway in the ocean breeze. Our eternal bodies will be so grand, so glorious, that we can only catch a fleeting glimpse. So we can really bank on the fact that our bodies are what they are now. They give in to sin and temptation too easily. They don't work like they once did. But we don't even understand how wonderful our new bodies will be. And this is what Paul's trying to show. He's trying to get the Corinthian believers to be excited about living in the new heavens, the new earth. And that is a challenge. Because while I can tell you, and you know that, that in that day and age, they they did think of the physical as inferior and the spiritual as wonderful. We can do the same thing today. Some of the ways that people talk about heaven is horribly discouraging. Some of you might have these thoughts. I don't know that I want to go to heaven. And, and we joke around about it, but, but people kind of take this idea to be true. I don't want to sit around on a cloud and play a harp. 
I mean, my mom made me take harp lessons and I got tired of it after a few weeks. Why would I do, want to do that for eternity? But we do think like that. We're tempted to believe also that all physical things are bad and that heaven's only a place of spiritual and somehow we're going to be happy about that. I don't know. I don't really know that I want to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the new heavens and the new earth are a physical place, but where sin and temptation do not reign, where sickness and death do not reign, and that we enjoy fellowship with one another and with God forever. And that doesn't diminish, that doesn't decrease. So some people think of heaven as, well, I mean, I'm going to get bored after a while. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's a place of bliss and love that never ends. Um, economists talk about um, diminishing marginal utility. It's a term that, that's given to show that when you take something or have something that you want, the more you have of it, the more that time goes by, the more it diminishes in its usefulness and even maybe joy to you. So think about a time when you've been very thirsty, maybe after a hike and you ran out of water and it's a 90 degree day and you finally get to water and you drink it. Oh, that's the best water I've ever had. This is so wonderful. You set it down, kind of you know, sit under the shade for a little bit, pick the water bottle back up and drink it again. Still wonderfully refreshing, but, but not as wonderful as the, as the first drink that you just took a few minutes ago. Now go down to the 20th sip, diminishing marginal utility. That's not heaven. We don't get bored of heaven. We don't get tired of heaven. Jesus spoke, to, spoke about in John 17, his great high priestly prayer, uh, the glory that he shared with the Father in heaven, the relationship that he had, and he said that he's going to bring us there to enjoy that, the love of the Father and the Son wrapped up with us, enjoying that. Heaven is not a place of diminishing marginal utility. Heaven is a place that will enthrall us always. It's physical, we'll enjoy the gifts that God has given us. We'll see them all as gifts from his hand. We won't get bored. Heaven is where we want to go. And this text is showing us that we will have bodies fit for that place, fit to enjoy that place, fit to love rightly. It's going to be wonderful. And that's what Paul's writing to show the Corinthians. There's a second consideration so that we can be sure that we will have resurrected bodies. It's in verses 42 to 49. Consider that we no longer will be defined by Adam, but by Christ. Adam, our first father, gave us bodies fit for this earth. We came from him and Eve. So he had a body, it became corrupted. We have bodies that are corrupted. Some of you who are in your teens and 20s think, my body's not corrupted. Just wait. Just wait. Adam gave us bodies fit for this earth. Christ, the life giver, didn't just give us new spiritual lives. This is the argument here. He's also going to give us new physical lives. This is what Paul's going after. So our salvation is a whole salvation. It's not just that he changed my heart when I was in college, gave me new loves, first and foremost being him. It's not that he just changed my heart, changed me spiritually. He's also going to change me physically forever. That's what Paul's getting at. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown, put in the ground, buried. What is sown is perishable or corrupted. When you bury someone, you know that they're in the grave and their bodies finally failed. Something overtook them. They were corrupted, perishable. But then for the believer, what is raised is imperishable, can't be corrupted anymore. It is sown in dishonor, shame is is another synonym for that word dishonor. So our bodies, whether we admit it or not, there are things that we've done with our bodies, things that we felt with our bodies that, that, that are shameful, dishonorable. And the text is saying this body that engaged in things that were shameful and even dishonorable will go in the grave and he'll raise one that will never need to be ashamed again, that isn't dishonored in any way. It'll be a body that's honorable. This is who God is. God is one who takes our shame, puts it to death, and brings us life in a way that we will never need to be ashamed again. This is only Jesus Christ that can do this. This is what the Bible teaches. So if you're someone who's ashamed of things you've done, ashamed of things you've done in your body, ashamed of things that you've thought, said, did, the good news is Jesus came to bury the body of shame and raise it into a body that is honorable. I hope that you believe that, find hope in that. This is who God is. People have sinned against him, caused shame to themselves, but he's a God who saves and redeems that and gives us even new bodies that no longer need to be ashamed. So verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory or brilliance or splendor. All of our bodies have done things that we should be ashamed of, have been dishonorable in the eyes of God, but this promise is that one day we'll have a body that's full of splendor and brilliance. It is sown in weakness, That word weakness speaks of illness or disability. Our bodies get sick. We get sick. We have disabilities, things that we can't do, maybe that other people can do. But it's raised in power or ability. So our bodies now, sick, weak, handicapped, there, the new body, here's what defines it. Able. Able. Powerful. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. So it's sown a body fit for this earth, which is corrupted, and the body itself is corrupted. But then it's raised into a spiritual body. So think of human body right now that we get from Adam, but one day we're going to get a divine body. And that's what he means by the word spiritual there. He doesn't mean like non-fleshly. He means spiritual, the life comes from heaven. So we've got a body that comes from this dust, but we're one day going to get a body that comes from heaven. That's the idea. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Verse 45, thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, that's speaking of Christ, right? Often referred to as the last Adam. So the first man, Adam, became a living being. He's alive, and then he had children, and those children had the same disabilities that he had, the same sicknesses that he had, the same limits that he had, the same weaknesses that he had. But now the second Adam, the last Adam, 
became a life-giving spirit. So Adam gives us the life from this earth. The second Adam from heaven gives us a life that's from heaven, a life that's eternal, a life that isn't corrupted. Verse 46, but it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So we're born, we have these bodies on this cursed earth, these are going to die, and then we'll receive the spiritual body from heaven. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, that's us, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. He's, He's repeating this idea to hammer it home. You were born, you look like Adam, you're sick like Adam, you're given a temptation like Adam, but one day you're going to be born not of the dust like Adam, but from heaven like the new Adam, the second Adam, the better Adam. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It sounds pretty definite in Paul's language, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So consider, we're no longer defined by Adam. Now think about that in terms of your heart and your, um, your spirituality. When you come to Christ, one of the things that happens on the inside is that you're converted, right? The things that you used to love, that were sinful, you now hate and despise. The things that you used to despise, maybe other people, you've now been given a heart to love. You are given a life on the inside that looks like Christ. You are changed. And so this is Paul showing we've been spiritually changed on the inside out in terms of our holiness before God, our righteousness. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins and now we're alive in Christ. We want to serve people. We want to obey. We want to work hard and do what's right and love. We're, we're now in Christ. And he's saying that same thing is going to happen physically one day too. So you were in Adam spiritually. Now you're in Christ. Physically, you were like Adam, but one day you will be physically like Christ. That's his argument. Listen to Philippians 3, 20 to 21. He says it really succinctly here in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. He's got the ability to do this. He's going to transform our lowly bodies into a body like His. So it's good to remember We can't be perfectly healthy on this earth. Now, some of you got your vitamins and supplements, and you think, no, no, no. This is the magic right here. Andrew, you just haven't tasted the magic that I have right here. No, I get it. We can improve the quality of life. There is evidence that God has given us signs that the curse is going to be overcome one day by giving us painkillers or Tylenol, or your supplement, whatever it is, I get it. We, we can have life improved. Thank, thank God for that. But that pill doesn't make us immortal, 
all right? That supplement doesn't fix everything. Our bodies are still dying. You can't give me a pill that gets me to be 172 years old, all right? We're still dying. It's good to remember that that's going to be the state of things until Christ returns and gives us our new bodies fit for the new heavens and the new earth. We want new and immortal, not current and immortal, all right? We don't want to live forever here and in these bodies. We want to live forever there and in those bodies. So it's good to remember that we can't solve all of life's physical ailments in this day and age. Again, I'm not a fatalist. I take medicine. I'm not against that. But sometimes it's just good to remind one another not, well, you've got to see my doctor and take my regimen and do. Sometimes it's good to say, hold on, brother. Hold on, sister. <laughs> the new body's coming. Hang in there. Hang in there. I'll ask the Lord to give you wisdom as to when it's right and wrong to offer your advice. But I would say it'd be good for us to point one another toward new bodies into the new heavens and new earth more often than we do. All right? There's a third consideration for us so that we know that we'll receive resurrected bodies, and it's this. Consider that God plans to change us to imperishable people. This is his plan. It's coming. Verses 50 to 57. You kind of see maybe the the key phrase that wraps this whole paragraph up uh, in verse 51. Notice the end of verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So he's saying not every Christian is going to die. There there are going to be Christians alive when Christ returns again. So we won't all sleep. We won't all die, fall asleep, the term given to to Christians who die. It's just showing that their, their death is not a final thing. All right? So he says, we shall not all sleep. Some of us will be alive when Christ returns. But listen... All of us will be changed because all of those who are Christ's will be fit for a new environment, the new heavens, the new earth. Consider that God has plans to change us into imperishable people. We'll all be changed. Now, I don't know if you've ever been given a new car. Maybe your mom or dad bought you one when you were young or who knows, all right? But let's say that you're given a new car, all right? You're given a new pristine vehicle that you've never, uh, one that's greater than you've ever had in your life. What do you do when you get a new car? Well, you do the thing that everyone's done when they get a new car. I'm going to keep this clean always. <laughs> this, the inside's going to be immaculate. It's going to shine. The outside's going to shine. I'm going to take care of this. We visit you a year later. Where are all those crumbs down there on the seat and the upholstery's ripped and things like that? So we are going to be given a new body and it's not going to deteriorate. It's God's plan for that to happen. Any improvements that we enjoy now with this car, in this life, this body, they don't last. So, so you can work out, eat right, and look the way you want. Let's Let's just give it a couple years, all right? Let's just, it doesn't last. But God's going to give us a new body that doesn't deteriorate, that doesn't weaken, 
It's going to be fit for an eternal kingdom with him. This is his plan, to give us something that's imperishable, can't be corrupted, can't die, can't deteriorate. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There is one reason right there that you don't want to live forever in these bodies. Because these bodies don't survive in heaven. These bodies can't handle heaven. Flesh and blood, this flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, these things that are dying, inherit an environment that's imperishable. Verse 51, listen, that behold is meant to grab your attention. Listen, I tell you a mystery. I tell you something that was revealed in some ways back then, but now is more fully realized now that Jesus has rose from the dead. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All of us will be different and able to live in heaven. Now, we want to be careful that we don't fall into wrong interpretations of the Bible, right? We want to make sure we understand exactly what it means. So when people tell you that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed is a verse written about the church nursery, that's not true, all right? Some of you don't get the joke. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Yeah, all right, some of you got it now. Okay, all right. Paul's saying not every Christian is going to die, there will be some that are alive at the second coming of Christ. So not all will die, fall asleep, but every one of them, those that have died already and those that are alive when he comes, will all be changed. All people in Christ will have bodies fit for heaven. When will that happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's that final call, that where Jesus comes again and the dead in Christ are raised and those who are alive go to be with him. All of us, those that were dead in Christ and those of us that are alive will be changed at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all, we shall be changed. All of us will be changed. Verse 53, why? For this perishable body, this one, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. There is a day coming when nobody will die anymore. People who are in Christ will no longer die. These things that don't work the way they should will go away and will be changed into bodies, people that will work the way we were made to work. That's going to happen one day. And notice, it says, then will come about the saying. Then will come the truth that we've been saying for a while. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, now that's not a reality right now. Death still reigns, doesn't it? We have people that have recently died, that may be about to die, that will die. Death still reigns. And when Christ comes back, the trumpet blows, and those who are dead in Christ go to be with him, and those of us who are already still alive, I mean, will go to be with him. It'll be shown right then, that's the end of death. No more. 
And then it will be true. The things that were prophesied in Isaiah that we've been saying together, death is swallowed up in victory. Finally, death will be digested. No more. Eaten up. Gone. Done away with. And then he moves from citing Isaiah to citing Hosea. And he says this from Hosea. Oh, death, where's your victory? It's a taunt about death. Oh, death, where's your sting? Now, notice this taunt is reserved for later. Because right now, sometimes it feels like death is victorious. And we do get sad because of death. And death does sting. Where's the sting? Look at the weeping parents, the weeping grandparents, the weeping spouse. There's the sting. It still stings. But at the second coming, we'll turn this into a taunt. Where's your sting? You're done. You've been swallowed up. Wouldn't it be so great to taunt death one day? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. So the sting of death is sin. What's that getting at? Death comes because of sin. Death comes because of sin. That was, that was told to us as God warned Adam in the garden. And the day you eat, you'll surely die. The day you disobey, you'll surely die. Death comes because of sin. It is the appropriate punishment for sinning against a holy God. So the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. So the way to stop sinning isn't by more rules, more law. The law just continues to reveal the sin in us. And sometimes even it prompts it. You ever told your child not to do something that they weren't thinking of before? And then all of a sudden you say, okay, now, when I leave, don't eat the candy over there. And all of a sudden their minds are like, what candy? And they start looking at the candy like Eve looked at the tree and it was desirable. Sometimes the law brings out more sin. But when you get more law and you understand what the do's and don'ts are, you realize more of your sin. I violated that. I violated that. I haven't done that. I haven't done that. So the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You don't overcome sin by more rules. You overcome it by grace. So what he's saying here is there's a day coming when we're all changed And death will then be allowed to be taunted. Right now we feel it. One day it will be done with. And this is so great. And those of you studying Hosea know this. Hosea 13, which is where this statement comes from, is a statement about judgment. The northern kingdom of Israel has been committing spiritual adultery against God. They mistreat one another. They rebel against God. And he says, you're going to be judged for that. The the consequences of sin is death. And so this is where that first shows up in the Scriptures. I want to read this for you, and I want you to see the result. God saying this, Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I rescue them from the power of the grave? Now, they don't deserve the rescue. They don't deserve to live. They deserve the grave. They deserve to die. Shall I rescue them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? 
O death, where are your plagues? O grave, where is your sting? You could almost think that God's saying, death, do your work. Where's the sting? Come and sting them for what they've done. Where are your plagues? And then he says this, compassion is hidden from my eyes. These people have treated him so poorly and so horribly when he's only been a good husband to them. He says, death is the result of that. Have your way. Compassion's hidden from my eyes. In 1 Corinthians, Paul takes that passage that is a passage used for judgment. And now he says, because of what Jesus Christ has done, now it's turned into a taunt of death. Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? And then notice, he doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 15, compassion's hidden from the eyes of God. No, God has demonstrated in sending his son Jesus Christ that mercy is in the mind of God also. Compassion is in the eyes of God. He does have compassion. And he shows that by sending his own son to die for sinners. And so now you look at a passage that was signifying judgment, appropriately so, and you see that the mercy of God now reigns over judgment. Grace is greater than sin. So a passage that was a passage about judgment, now because of the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, now it's a reason to give thanks. I have victory over death. You have victory over death. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. They sinned, didn't get away with it, died in their sin. Jesus came and offered life for sinners, victory for sinners, victory over death. He rose from the dead, so now we can say we will not die forever. We will not be judged by God. And by the way, the northern kingdom of Israel, there were a remnant there who believed in the promises of God. And so they would have been saved waiting for the Messiah. But again, in Hosea, it's a sign of judgment. In 1 Corinthians, it's a sign of salvation. There is victory over death, and it's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good passage to read at the bedside of a loved one who trusts in Christ. There's so much sadness around that bed. The time's coming to an end. The things that we've shared are coming to an end for a time. There's sadness, appropriately so. But next time you're in that situation, pick up a Bible and read, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to defeat our worst enemy, and he did it. And you can see that when he came out of the grave. So, just to wrap this point up, death is the consequence for sin. It's the appropriate consequence for sinning against our Creator. But because of His mercy, God has offered life to sinful people. The bodies of those who trust in Him for salvation must still die because they're corrupted. But His Son's resurrection shows that when God redeems sinful people, He plans to redeem them fully, spiritually and physically. Their hearts are now changed, 
and their bodies will be changed. Death does not have the final say. God has the final say, and it's a final declaration of victory through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I read this a couple weeks ago, and I thought of you all and thought I'd share it with you today. The periodical Business Today came out and reported that a a former Google engineer predicted that there would be immortality for humans in the next seven years. All right? True story. I'll read you the paragraph of the periodical. A former Google engineer and prominent futurist, Ray Kurzweil, has made a bold prediction that humans will achieve immortality in the next seven years thanks to, not God, thanks to the help of nanorobots. Kurzweil, this is a true story, okay? Real article, all right? Kurzweil, who has received numerous awards for his contributions to technology, believes that with the current advancements and expansions seen in genetics, robotics, and nanotechnology, we'll soon have nanorobots running through our veins. Pleasant, all right? He claims that these microscopic robots will fend off aging and illness and repair our bodies on a cellular level, ultimately leading to everlasting life. Now, I hope you see the problems here. First of all, I don't want a robot in any part of me, all right? So a nanorobot goes inside and fixes all maladies. You can almost imagine the person walking out of the lab with full of robotic things and then getting in a car accident <laughs> or, or, or whatever it may be. So no one, no scientist, no doctor can lift the curse entirely. Things can help us mitigate certain ailments, but nothing can solve the problem of the curse. And let's say you and your robot friends do start to live a long time, okay? It doesn't help us spiritually. It doesn't help our world spiritually, does it? It doesn't take away anger and hatred, jealousy and envy and lust. It doesn't do that. So listen, you do not want to live forever with this, in this. You don't want to live forever with these bodies in this world. You do not want that. And that is a biblical reality. Remember the tree of life in the garden? A tree that when eaten of would would demonstrate that God is the life giver and that all that you need physically and spiritually comes from Him? Adam and Eve had that tree living forever because of God planting it there and God sustaining us physically and spiritually. And then when Adam and Eve sin, they're removed from the garden and they're not given access to the tree of life. Why? Because God's good. Because you do not want to live forever with your corrupted selves in a corrupted world. You don't want that. We do not want that. So thank you, former Google engineer. I'm sure you're very smart, but I do not want what these people are offering. I don't want to live forever on this planet in this body. I want to live in a new heavens and a new earth with a new body that God designs, God makes. And so this is a call for us 
to find our hope in the new heavens, the new earth. We're here for a minute, and then we'll be with Him forever, bodies that can't be corrupted, an environment where sin does not reign. That's what we want. And oh, by the way, the tree of life is also mentioned in the discussion of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. The trees in Genesis, the trees in Revelation. That's when we want the tree, when He gives us our new bodies that can handle it. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you see that God is good. He's not just one that forgives sin, but He also changes sinners on the inside, gives us new loves, new desires, but He also gives us a new future, and it promises that He will fit us for heaven. I hope you bank on that. Think of this. Adoniram Judson has this quote. Reminds me of this. Remember when it was, it's fitting now because it's springtime. Remember when you were a child, if, if you're out of school now, and uh, springtime was coming, the last day of school, and you're looking at the clock, 1.45, 3 o'clock. Doors open, you're out of here <laughs> for the summer, right? That's that's how we should feel about this life, <laughs> all right? Okay, but one day the trumpet's going to sound, I'm out of here, summertime. Judson says, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school for the summer. So, Lord, come quickly, right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your plan. You have planned not just to save us spiritually speaking, but to save us physically. You are a full Savior, a complete Savior. We will walk and talk with you, with each other. We will enjoy life together. We will experience love and give love in an environment that is without sin, without error, without deceit. Father, thank you for all of your promises. And Father, in some way, I pray that this passage would encourage those struggling physically, struggling spiritually, struggling emotionally, knowing that this is temporary. Our future is the future of Christ, alive, well, imperishable. Father, give us hope, give us endurance as we wait for that day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.